The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. My guest today is professional freelance photographer Daryl Lloyd. Daryl has been a lifelong fan of David Cassidy. And in our enthralling conversation, he talks about why David was such an influence on his life and career. He first became interested in photography when he was 10 years old, inspired by photographers such as Kenny Liu, Annie Leibovitz and Henry Diltz. Daryl talks about photographing David in concert, how he inspired his career, the importance of David's music in the history of American pop music, talks about his acting skills, chooses his favourite songs and also calls for music artists who admired David's work to join forces and honour him in a special tribute. Welcome, Daryl. Good afternoon. How are you, Louise? Well, very well. It's lovely to see you. Great to see you as well. I mean, you are in London, England, and I am in Minnesota in the United States. Talking about your photography first, you said to me earlier that photographs you saw on the teen magazine covers was like a masterclass in photography for you. Exactly. What was drawing you in and what were you learning from those images? Well, when, 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 I, when teen magazines first caught my attention, they had the composite of like four or five sometimes seven actors and sometimes an actress, but usually they were actors on the cover of this magazine. And they were usually the the full portrait, you know, the full face, the actor was either smiling or not smiling. You know, they, they whatever expression they had on their, their face, it was a pleasant exp- expression. It wasn't necessarily a sad expression. Uh, they usually saved that for the, for the, 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 the uh, article inside if it was a sad article. But the, the covers, because they had so many different views of these actors, um, and each month, or I guess back then they were like bi-weekly, um, each time, you know, the, the, the actors were in a different section and, uh, of, the, of the cover. And as a particular actor got more popular, the size of his photo got larger on the magazine cover. And of course, you know, you could tell that the most popular actor was being photographed by the head photographer of that, of that particular magazine. So that's where the, the, the talent came in. It's often said that you know more about people through the lens. What is your technique? Well, my technique is, is that I like uh, my subject to be as natural as possible. And that I find makes the photograph that I take more appealing to me because I actually take photos for myself. And I'm, the, I'm not taking photos for somebody else to say, oh, this is a good photo and that and the other. I, I need to be pleased with the photograph. And so if I capture a, a, a wonderful photo of someone, then I'm pleased. What is the favorite photograph you have ever taken? Oh, 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 oh my. Oh, there's not enough hours in the day for that. I have taken so many wonderful photos of, of my family. I've taken photos of nature. I've taken photos of animals. I've taken photos of celebrities. I, 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 <laughs> there's no way I can narrow it down to one. 
So tell me when your interest in photography started. Well, it started as a child, and it's a funny situation. Um, you know how you have family gatherings at Christmas time and Thanksgiving. You have the family, you, you, go, you either come to your house or you go to their house. So back in those days, we had the little Kodak Instamatic cameras, and everybody would take, take their photos and things like that. And then when the photos got developed, I looked at the photos, and I noticed that all the family was off to the side of the photograph. And then on this side of the photograph was the kitchen table, the living room, the dining room, the front door. All of that was, and the, and the family was gathered in, and Uncle Roy was cut off, and Aunt Thelma's head was cut off over here and things like that. So as these, as these gatherings happened, I, I would take people's photo, take their cameras, and then I would take the photo. And I would, all I would do is just center the photo, you know, put the family in the middle so that nobody gets cut off. Anyway, so as time went on, people would come into the party, into the, the gathering, and just dump their cameras in my hand. And I would end up with like seven cameras in my hand for the whole evening and things like that. But that's how it started. You know, it was just a simple situation of me understanding composition is what it was. It was, you know, composing the photo. And, you know, by having people in the center or, you know, somewhere, you know, like that, um, it helped, you know, to create the image. So how did your career move on? How did it evolve? Well, after that, when I was in my teen years, I bought my first uh, SLR camera. Um, it was a Ricoh something or other. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was a wonderful little manual camera. And I learned how to take photos, you know, manually. Um, and it was a situation where I learned how to compose a photo and make sure I had the photo because back in those days, we didn't see the photograph until like a week or two later. So, you know, that's not something that I could read. Nowadays we have digital. If I screw up the shot, then I can just, you know, do it again. And it wasn't that way. I had to get it right the first time. And that is still how I shoot today. Even though I have digital cameras, when I see the image in my viewfinder, I know that I've got the image that I want. So where did you learn your craft? I learned in New York City. I uh, grew up on uh, uh, Staten Island in New York City. And that's where, you know, I, I took photos of, of the bridge. I took photos of the Brooklyn Bridge, the Statue of Liberty, uh, uh, the World Trade Center, um, the Empire State Building, you know, people passing by. It, it, yeah, that's, that's where I like honed my craft. Who were the photographers back then who made the biggest impact on you? Well, there was uh, uh, Kenny Liu from Tiger Beat um, because his, his photos were on the, on the cover of the magazine. I don't recall the, photo, the photographers from 16 magazine. I'm not sure if they actually listed the, pho the photographers of 16. But it was mainly the Tiger Beat, Tiger Beat group of magazines that caught my eye. Then there was also uh, Annie Leibovitz. Uh, she was photographing, she was the, the head photographer for Rolling Stone at the time in the early 70s. And she was taking pictures of John Lennon and Mick Jagger and Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles and doing all sorts of stuff uh, on, the, on, the, on the covers and in, inside the interview. So 
that magazine also caught my attention when I would pass a newsstand. Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to figure this out. If I got into photography because of David Cassidy, or if I got into David Cassidy because of photography. Is that the way I want it? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, David was being photographed at the time by a lot of photographers, but there was one main photographer that photographed him. And of course, his name is Henry Diltz. And Henry's work had a huge, huge impact on me because not only was he, was he photographing David at the time, but he was also photographing Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He was photographing Joni Mitchell, uh, Mama Cass, uh, the Mamas and the Papas, uh, Jackson Brown. He was photographing Richard Pryor. He was just prolific. And uh, his partner, but they had their little uh, album cover business that they did. You know, Henry did the photos and, and his partner did the artwork for the albums. And, and they, did, they did all of the album work by hand. And it was just fascinating to, to see. So in addition to magazines on the, on the newsstands, I also had albums in record stores that also inspired me as a photographer. Because, you know, here these are, you know, big 12-inch, you know, covers and things like that. And they were just terrific. I wanted to be able to photograph people as Henry did. Because Henry also photograph people in their natural environment. Um, most, of the, most of the photos of David that he took were casual, but you can also tell that they were being shot with the intention of being used um, in a magazine and such, or some other promotional thing. Um, another, another photograph of Henry's that, that really, that, that I still look at this day and just go, man, that is a great photo is, as it happened to be, is the cover of David's first solo album, Cherish. I happen to think that the way that David is posed, the outfit that he is wearing, the expression on his face, was the ultimate capture of him for his first solo album, you know? And I just went, wow, that is just an amazing photograph. It certainly gave a different look a different view of him from his Partridge family persona. And I appreciated that because of the fact of what he was trying to accomplish at the time. It was a spectacular album. I still think, you know, I, I play that album frequently to this day. The whole packaging of that was spectacular. The photography, the music, the, the choice of songs. I thought that it was a spectacular way to introduce a different side of David Cassidy. Was it the Partridge family that first introduced you to him and his music? Again, I was growing up in New York City and we watched uh, the promos for that. They had promos for that for like a month before the TV show, probably more than that, month before the TV show came on. And the promos on, on the TV station was WABC on Channel 7 in New York City, which probably is the same. Um, and they just did incredible promos for the show. And when that show came on the very first time, I was sitting in front of uh, probably myself and my mom were sitting in, meh, I don't know if my mom was there, but I was certainly there. And I watched it from that very first episode until it went off the air. But when you first heard his voice, did that strike a chord with you? Yes, 
Yes, it was, it was a, a, you know, he had a pleasant voice. He had a great sound. He had an original voice. Uh, his phrasing still is, is second to none. Nobody phrases a song like he does. And uh, at the time, you know, there was, there was David Cassidy, there was the Osmond Brothers and the Jackson Five. And at the time, they were my music tasting liking of the time. Uh, you know, my, my mom liked uh, Perry Como and Nat King Cole and all that such, and, and Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. My sister loved the Supremes and the Temptations and all that. My brother loved the, the English invasion. He loved the Rolling Stones and he loved the Beatles and he loved the Yardbirds and, and, and all that such. Um, and I had my own, which was, you know, David Cassidy, Partridge Family, Jackson 5, Osmond Brothers. The, the first impact that I was aware that, that, that I was kind of unique in my liking of David Cassidy was when I went to uh, Madison Square Garden. I was at that concert and I felt like I was probably one of 20 guys that were in the, in the audience. <laughs> well, actually, my brother and I, we were probably, you know, the only few that were, that were not female in that crowd. As I sit here right now, I can still hear the music reverberating off of the walls of Madison Square Garden. I can hear it in my head. You know, David would sing and then, you know, and then there's the echo that bounces off of the wall and the, 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 percussion, the, the percussion of the drum that you, that you hear. I, I hear all of that to this day in my head. There's one song that he performed that stuck out more than any, uh, which was Where Is The Morning? And at the time, I don't think I had the Cherish album yet. The, Cher the Cherish album had come out like two weeks before that, but I don't think I had it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I didn't. Because all the other songs that he played, I knew them. They were Partridge songs. And he played that one, and I had never heard it before. And if you can imagine this, Madison Square Garden was actually quiet for a moment because they didn't know that song. But that song just, just stuck with me. And to this day, it's one of my favorites. Because he could deliver a song like nobody else. He could enter a stage like nobody else. When he came on the stage, the flashbulb, I'm amazed that he was never ended up blind. Uh, the flashbulbs in that arena were insane. It lit up the, the it, it lit up everything, you know, and there was thousands of them. Probably everybody in that audience had a camera and they all, when he hit the stage, all those cameras went off. Did you have your camera with you that day? I did not, which <laughs> I, I, I did not. And I have no idea why, um, but it wouldn't have made any difference anyway, because I did see photos of people that were sitting where, where we were. David was just, he, it was just a spotlight on the stage. You couldn't even see him, you know, in photographs, you couldn't see him. But um, yeah, but on stage, you could see him. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, yeah, the cameras back then were not able to, to capture that type of distance. What did that concert mean to you? Was that the first time you'd seen him live? Yes, it was. And that was actually the first of three times that I saw him live that year. That concert was the first concert ever to have overhead projection. And the overhead projection was done by a company called uh, Joshua Light Show. 
um, uh, which was run by Joshua Light. And uh, he still is active in New York doing stuff. Uh, he's very difficult to, to uh, get a hold of. I've tried to send him emails and because, I mean, the concert was projected on the overhead and I find it hard to believe that it wasn't recorded while they were projecting it. So, you know, it was a, <clears throat> it was a new technology back then. They may not have recorded it. I don't know. I, I, I sure hope they did. Uh, but right now, we don't have any answers about that. No, we want 1970s concerts. Yes, yes. I, anything from his first concert to the, the last concerts in 74. You know, those are, you know, we've, we've seen snippets of those concerts. And I would like to think that, that some of those, you know, more than snippets exist. Chances are they might not exist. You know, those snippets were probably done by the news crews for the te television shows. People have Absolutely. no idea just what he was like as a performer on, on stage. He was something else. Yeah. Um, I saw him March 11 at Madison Square Garden. I saw him June 10th at Nassau Coliseum. And then I saw him two weeks later, June 24th at Garden State Art Center, which is, which is now called uh, something else. And it dawned on me uh, just a couple of days ago that, that those are the three times that I saw him in the 70s. And it dawned on me that all of those shows, I had seen him in the afternoon. They were afternoon shows. And uh, I didn't get to see him uh, do an evening show until you know, I was an adult. Yeah. yeah, so I found that fascinating. Did you notice during those three concerts how the set list may have changed, how he changed? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, first of all, the Madison Square Garden concert, that was Partridge Family Music. He played some Chicago songs, but, and also that was a, a promo for the Cherish album. The June concerts that he did, he did the uh, Rock Me Baby set list. Um, so he did Rock Me Baby. He came out uh, wearing a, the, the jacket from Rock Me Baby and he had, uh, at no, yes, at Nassau Coliseum, he had the jacket on, but he had brown boots, I think. No, no, he had white boots, white boots, brown pants. Um, at the Garden State Art Center concert, he had blue jeans that had patches on it, and he had the silver boots and the white jacket. Um, and that show was just an amazing show. Um, it was not not as as not on the caliber of Madison Square Garden, but you know, I mean, it was spectacular. In my opinion, nobody put on a show like he did in the '70s. The man, as soon as he touched the stage, was just electric. The whole the whole building just blew up. Where do you rate David as a entertainer? People always say that he was underrated. I I never thought that he was underrated, and I don't think. The people in the industry thought he was underrated. I thought that he was underappreciated. He didn't really get appreciated for his talent. I didn't get to see his Broadway shows. I didn't get to see Little Johnny Jones. Um, I did get to see Blood Brothers, um, but that was that was many many years later. Um, you know, uh, he did Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, I didn't get to see those shows, 
And I definitely, the one I wanted to see was FX, and I didn't get to see that. There was no doubt or dispute about his talent. David was absolutely talented beyond belief. There was um, a, a musical that came out, Chicago, with Richard Gere and Catherine Zeta-Jones and Renee Zellweger. When I saw that movie for the first time, I went, wow, David should have been playing the lawyer in this. I was like, my goodness, look at this. This is incredible. And then years later, um, the, re the, the live version of Beauty and the Beast. When I watched that movie, I go, wow, David could have played that part. David could have been the father in Beauty and the Beast, you know? And I went, wow, that's what I thought immediately. I had just wished that he had more cinematic history, you know, something other than Spirit of 76, you know, his TV show, Man Undercover, that was good. Movie pilot for that, A Chance to Live, was spectacular. You know, he got nominated for an Emmy for that, which, you know, that's, that's, that's being accepted by your peers, you know? I mean, first of all, in the Partridge family, he was a tremendous comedian. The man was just funny beyond belief, you know? Uh, he, could, he could do comedy and he could be a straight man in that show which was, you know, of course, you know, sometimes he had to be a straight man to Danny, but, you know, even on his own stuff, you know, when he's just being goofy Keith. And then he does stuff like A Chance to Live, where he's playing an undercover cop, and it was very serious, and, and it was spectacular. You know, he was filled to the brim with talent, and, and nobody could deny him that. But the image we were sold, going back to the pictures on the front of the teen magazines, did that cloud people's judgments, in your opinion? To a certain degree, to a certain degree, that, that was the fact. I think that certainly was the case up until he did the, the police story thing. If he had continued on that trajectory um, of doing that type of acting, acting that was more steady instead of sporadic like it was, I think that he could have, you know, had a, a, an acting career that would have been parallel to his music career. Now, I know that you're a great admirer of his songwriting. Where do you rate him as a songwriter? I rate him up there with, with uh, right below Lennon and McCartney, Elton John, David Bowie, and then David Cassidy. And which songs particularly resonate with you? Well, there is Where Is The Morning, that one off the first album. Uh, off of the second album, it would be A Song of Love, which is the last one. Uh, uh, Some Kind of Summer off of the second album. Uh, off of the third album, it would be uh, Can't Go Home Again. Um, it would be Praying on My Mind. I had always, in, in the times that I, that I was doing celebrity photographing, photography, I, I had the opportunity to be assigned to David every once in a while. And I had always wanted to ask him to put Praying on My Mind back in his set list because he did it uh, on the Cassidy Live album. And I thought that was a spectacular song. I went, wow, this is a great song. So, so there's that, you know. Uh, so Praying on My Mind, that's, that's an absolute favorite of mine. Uh, off of the Cassidy, off of the live album, um, I like Delta Lady and uh, For What It's Worth. Mm -hmm. That's really good. And then off of the Higher They Climb album, uh, uh, This Could Be The Night. I like that one a lot. Um, uh, Common Thief. I like that one. Uh, off of Home Is Where The Heart Is. I like Fool In Love. 
uh, and Bedtime, of course, everybody likes Bedtime. That's a great, great song. Um, uh, it's a great little lullaby. David was really, really good at doing cover songs, which I really, really liked. How Can I Be Sure was a cover song, which he did fabulously. Uh, Fever off of the, uh, the third album, Dreams, that was really good. Anyway, he, he oh, and of course, Tomorrow, yeah. uh, uh, off of Home Is Where The Heart Is, that's a spectacular song. That's, that's on the caliber of, uh, well, it's written by, so it's on the caliber of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Um, but he did a fabulous version of that. The RCA albums were superb in every way. Yes, they were. Do you regard the RCA albums as among his best body of work, or do you think it came later? The, the hierarchy of his work would be the stuff that he did for Bell Records, and then the stuff that he did for RCA Records, and then the solo album, the 1991, the self-titled one, and then there was a couple of songs off of Didn't You Used to Be that I like. And then after that, uh, it was just like a sporadic type thing. When did you get the first chance to meet him? The book signing. I went to the book signing. I took my, my camera and uh, I said, I'm going to get a photo of him no matter what. I'm going to get a photo. And of course, while you're standing in line, they're like saying, no photos. You know, we don't have time for photos and things like that. I said, uh, I I'm going to get a photo. And so here, let, let me show you this. Let me show you this. I have the photo. Let me see if I can show it to you. Oh. Oh yeah. Oh. Hang on. That that's a lovely picture. Oh. Yeah. I have this hanging. I have this hanging above my desk, Great. and it was just a, 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 a. And I I was the only one that was able to get a photo with David that day. <laughs> wow. Wow. And it was it was spectacular. And then I met him at uh, Tower Records when he was promoting the the nineteen ninety the the self titled CD. And then I met him for, oh my goodness, what album was that? Then and Now, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got that. And, uh, and I also have that autographed by Mike Melvoin, um, because Mike Melvoin did a concert at a local jazz club in Los Angeles, and I went to the show. And after the show, you know, he's hanging out, talking, you know, and I, I, I knew that he was, I brought the CD with me on purpose for him to autograph. So on the CD, I've got Mike's autograph and David's autograph, and it was spectacular. Mike was surprised, he, he, he looked at the album and he, and he recalled you know, producing the album and, and the time that he had on it. And he said, my favorite uh, song that we recorded was on Broadway. And I said, on Broadway? That's not on this album. He said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. And so he flipped it over and he went, huh. It's not on here. I'm like, I already told you, it's not on there. But now that he, you know, since he mentioned it, I'm like, man, I'd like to hear that. So yeah. it's, it's somewhere, so it exists somewhere. Do you think there is a missing back catalog some, somewhere that none of us have heard? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, 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 yes, yes. There's probably lots of demos and there's probably absolutely a lot of completed songs that just didn't make it on, just, by the nature of albums, you know, there are certain songs that make it and there are some that, that there are not, it's not room for, mm. you know? Um, the one thing that, that I had always wished that David had, had done was to make a doubles album, double CD. 
um, where he can just pile on the songs. How important is it to his legacy that we as lifelong fans and people generally get those songs released that completely encompasses everything he ever did? That that would be an ideal situation because most artists do get that at, at, at some point in time. You know, Elvis got that. You know, Rod Stewart's done a couple of them. Uh, Elton John has done a couple of them. David Bowie absolutely have done them. It's, it's time for a box set of David Cassidy. And while I'm at it, is, is also time for a box set of George Michael. I would like to think that George invited David to sing on some of his songs. I, I, I don't think that's a, a reality, but I would like to think that. There's a question that I always wanted to ask David, and I never, every time that I was with him, I would forget to ask him the question. But on The Higher They Climb, there is a song called Bebopalula, and that was recorded in 1975. Also in 1975, John Lennon was recording his rock and roll album, and he has Bebopalula on that album. So my question for David was, who recorded it first? Because they were actually hanging out around that time. So who inspired who to record that song? Was David recording it and John heard it and went, wow, I, I'm gonna record that song, that's a great song, or was it vice versa? So anyway, I, I didn't get a chance to, to ask him that. The, the, one, the one time that I had an extended period of time with David was he was doing an auction in Beverly Hills. And uh, surprisingly enough, I was the only still photographer at that event. Uh, lots of the TV television stations were there, the news stations were there, but I was the only still photographer. He and I, uh, I got to talk to him about Henry Diltz and David really enjoyed not talking about himself and talking about Henry. He talked to me about Henry for about 10, 15 minutes, and it was divine. You mentioned before we did, we did this link that you would like to see his musical friends do a tribute album to him. Tell us what your thoughts are on that. Um, I would like to see people like Elton John, Alice Cooper, you know, some of the, some of the other artists who have claimed that you know, David inspired him and, and uh, some of the guys in Motley Crue, that type of thing. Two things I would like to see. I would like to see a box set and then a tribute set of people recording David's music, either the Partridge family music or his solo music. I play it constantly in my car <laughs> and it blows me away that I've been listening to the music for 50 years and I, I still know all the words to a lot of those songs. You know, watching the, the episodes on, on DVD was spectacular because I got to watch them as an adult instead of, a, uh, I was 12 years old when the show came on. Well, I was 10 years old. You know, to see the episodes as an adult is, is really amusing. You also studied child psychology. Yes, uh, child psychology, University of New Mexico. Um, I, was, I wanted to specialize in uh, natural traumas, you know, helping kids to understand, you know, stuff like, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, uh, floods, things like that, because they do get affected by that. And, and you know, sometimes they cannot act exactly comprehend what that is. So that was the, the field that I was interested in. 
why did you not pursue that path? I was going to college on my father's GI Bill. The money ran out and I was not interested in running up a college debt. But your love of music and your love of photography both came together in the perfect storm, really, didn't they? Yes, it did. And, and both have served me well uh, all these years. You know, I, I, I got to meet Henry Diltz for a brief second in 2007 in New York City. I was about to start a shoot with Tom Cruise at the Carlisle Hotel in New York City. And uh, I was standing outside enjoying the New York weather, enjoying the traffic and all the, the sounds and just, just being on the streets of New York, waiting for Tom Cruise to come out. And uh, as luck would have it, as soon as Tom came out, Henry was coming back to that same hotel with whoever he was working with. As I'm walking towards him, I, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's Henry Diltz right there in front of me. And so I stepped up to him and I said, I have to thank you because of you, I have had a successful career in photography. And then I had to leave. I could tell by the look in, first of all, Henry just had this great big smile on his face when I told him that. And I could tell that he wanted to talk more about it, but I had to go. For years and years and years after that, I was like, you know what? I should have just blown off the Tom Cruise thing and just sat and talked with Henry for a little bit. So you having the opportunity to thank Henry for your career, when people right. tell you they want to be like you, they want to be a photographer of your caliber. Is that a compliment you can take on board easily? As I have progressed in my uh, career, you know, I've gotten to meet a lot of other wonderful, talented photographers and things like that. You know, some photographers, you know, that are you know, extremely successful. And one of them, which I, I, the name is, I'm escaping me at the moment, but one of them told me a very important thing. And he said, when you get to the top, send the elevator back down. And I, I live by that. And whenever I see a photographer whose work is, is exceptional, I, I make sure that I let that photographer know that. And, and I offer my, my assistance and anything that I, could, that, you know, that I could help them with. You know, maybe it's a mentorship type thing, but not like an official mentorship. But uh, yeah, I've got, I've got a little a little circle of photographers that, that we all inspire each other and, and, and take advice from each other and give advice to each other. I've got a quote here from you that I found. You said, a photographer sums up a lifetime of learning, growth and desires. Photograph endures not only to preserve the moment, but to speak to anyone who sees it. Yes, I do recall that. That, that actually came out of me just as it was. And uh, that's exactly what it is. Uh, it's, a, it's a moment captured in time, which is what I enjoy about, photographer, uh, about photography, is that that moment has been, you know, that second is, that, that moment is here for a second, and then it's gone. But a photographer can capture it. Now you captured David in concert in his later years, some stunning pictures, which I used in my Cherish book. Yes. What was it like to photograph him? Ever since the Madison Square Garden concert, 
I have always wanted to photograph him in concert as he is. In show business, in the press world, like you were saying with the Wembley folks, we are, uh, uh, as press photographers, we are only allowed to photograph the first three songs of, of any show. And then after that, you know, they bring us down to the front of the stage. We have the first three songs and then they, they shuttle us out. Um, I have always wanted to photograph David his complete show in 2006, 2007, whatever it is, the, the, the photos that, that are in your book. The assignment came up and nobody took it. And I was like, I'm absolutely taking it. And uh, I had gone to the concert with uh, my then girlfriend who, who has since become my wife. I was on the assignment. Um, she's a photographer as well, but I was the one on assignment. So they gave me a uh, arena pass. And then usually when they give uh, passes, they also give you tickets to the concert. So after you shoot the concert, you, you know, you can hang out if you want. So I took the, the pass, the arena pass, and I gave the, the concert tickets to my, to my girlfriend. So anyway, so I'm taking photos of the concert and things like that. And I shot the entire concert and I got all the photos that I've ever wanted to get of David. I photographed it from every, almost every point of that arena. And it was, it was a dream assignment for me. Those are the photos of David that I am the most proud of. Um, you know, it was just, it was just magical. And for me, for, uh, for a brief moment during that, during that concert, I, I, I kind of imagined myself photographing him at Madison Square Garden. And uh, that was a, a, a delightful little, little thing I had going on there. Yeah. Um, and then I also got to photograph him three years later, four years later in California. It was the first time that I had ever seen, because he'd been wearing white shirts and blue shirts and things like that. But at this concert, he had on a red shirt. I had actually gotten there at the club. It was a nightclub. And I had gotten there in the afternoon. So I, I had actually got to hear his uh, sound check and things like that. And I was inside, you know, just looking around. I see him on the stage and he's wearing this bright red shirt. And I was like, oh my goodness. But I didn't think he was gonna wear it for the show. I thought, you know, I thought, you know, it's something he has on. And I didn't have permission to photograph that, but I wished that I had. But anyway, so when the show started, he had on that same red shirt. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is fantastic. Uh, so I got some wonderful photos of him in that red shirt. In addition to shooting him on, on stage in concert like that, I also wanted to be able to photograph like his sound checks and things like that. You know, him just, you know, hanging out, you know, playing music on his own and things like that. Yeah, I also wanted David to do more covers of songs that, that he really wanted to play in his concerts. You know, I, I understand that, that, you know, he was beholden to play the Partridge hits and, and all those other hits that he had, you know, but, you know, I always wanted him to toss in the sprinkling of the one song that I've always wanted. And I, I meant to ask him to do it and I never got a chance to, but the one song that I've always wanted him to do was Bell Bottom Blues by Eric Clapton. Whenever I hear that song, I, I, for some reason I hear David singing it I hear him playing guitar on it because I know that Eric Clapton was an idol of David. That's the one song that I always wanted him to record, you know, and absolutely play it in concert. And he played, he played a couple of other Clapton songs. Yeah, uh, and also some Jeff Beck. Yes. As well. Yes, yes. And again, underappreciated as a guitarist. Exactly. And as a drummer. I mean, exactly. 
I, when I saw him in 1973 uh, at Wembley, and it was the Empire Pool, he never played the stadium. Uh-huh. He did this drum solo, which just blew you, blew you away. Incredible. And right. so like guitar playing, it was... Well, you guys had a different, different view of... of uh, David's career was different for you guys than it was here in America. Yeah. Um, he was introduced to England as a musician, as a singer. Um, because I, when he was introduced to you guys, the TV show was almost over. Yeah, it didn't start here until September 1971. And oh, I didn't know you. I didn't know you guys had the show. He came over here in February '72. He'd been on a holiday in Italy, uh-huh. traveling around Europe, and he arrived at Heathrow, not just to do some little promotions, having no idea that anybody would know even know who he was. Hair was very long. He wore those furry boots. Yes, those are spectacular photos. I remember buying a pair because he had a pair. Yes, They were the most uncomfortable things I'd ever worn in my life. And my mum said, (laughs) are you going to take them off? They were expensive, weren't they? They were. Aren't you going to take them off, my mum used to say to me. I said, no, I love them. And my feet were roasting inside. But because you couldn't couldn't, when you're 13, 14, take them off. (laughs) That's wonderful. If he, if he had it, you know, and it's like when you were watching the Partridge family, if in an episode his hair was long, your yes. hair was long, the following episode it would be short. So you go down the hairdressers and get your hair cut. Following week, it's long again because they often <laughs> sequentially. When you look back at the life that he has given you and the career that, you, that you've had as a result, can you sum up what the essence is of of David for you and what he's always meant to you? Well, professionally and privately, this is a a combination thing. The Madison Square Garden concert, to this day, I measure all concerts that I see to that show. Uh, That show is, is, is the ultimate show that I have ever seen. And I have seen Elton John. I have seen Eric Clapton. I have seen U2. I have seen... David Bowie, I have seen anybody, anybody who's anybody, I've probably seen them with the exception of Elvis Presley. But every show I measure to that and every artist I sort of measure to David. My top favorites are David Cassidy, David Bowie, Elton John, um, Eric Clapton, uh, a few others. Those, those are my go-tos. Personally, I just enjoy the sound of David's voice. I enjoy the sound of his music. Sometimes I really get into the lyrics that he wrote, depending on, on what type of mood I'm in. It, it's, it's interesting because I get in two distinct moods. Sometimes I'm in the mood for Partridge Family music. Uh, and that's usually just, you know, out running errands, you know, doing stuff around the house type stuff like that. But if I'm taking, you know, like a, a drive, if I'm driving somewhere, uh, that's a distance, you know, I'll play the solo stuff. What do you think his legacy should be? David had the unfortunate uh, thing of having record companies just tank under him. And, and that can stop the momentum of anything that's going on. Because he never had a consistent music career, I don't think he will be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. One of the other criteria is the impact that they've had on on the music scene. And David absolutely 
absolutely fills that. If, if, if it was the court of public opinion, he absolutely would be in there. But I, for one, would love to see that. I would love to see him be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I absolutely think that he has earned it. He has put in the time. He has, you know, he's, he's, he's you know, an old road dog. You know, he was, he was on the road to the very end. Granted, you know, it wasn't consistent, but, you know, I am also very pleased that, that finally his, his entire catalog so far of released music is, is out. I have waited decades for Cassidy Live to come out on CD. A proper CD release of Higher They Climb, Home Is Where The Heart Is, Getting In The Streets, you know, those, you know. So I was very pleased when those were finally released. Again, if he had had a consistent recording career, his music would have been as prevalent as Elton John, David Bowie, Rod Stewart. You know, he would have been, because he is of that ilk, and he would have been in that, in that uh, collection. Because when you consider the caliber of people who worked with him on Home is Where the Heart Is and The Higher They Climb, that's justification to his credibility. And the song, I Write the Songs, is, oh. the, is a prime example of that. He's the one who recorded it first, and he's the one who had a hit with it first. And then Barry Manilow comes along and, and you know, ends up being his song. It's like, I'm going, wait a minute, how did that happen? I have a, a local bar that's right down the street from, from where I live. Right before this pandemic thing happened, I'd go in for happy hour and I'd be sitting at the bar and all of a sudden music from Higher They Climb was playing and I recorded it on my phone. Yep, I recorded it on my phone. I'm like, oh my goodness. And I was watching the people in the bar, watching the, the bar staff and all this other such. And I could see that they were enjoying the music. And I said, do you guys have any idea what, 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 what song this is and who it is? I said, do you like it? They said, yeah, it's a great song. I said, this is David Cassie. It's an album cut. You know, it's not even a, a, a single or anything. It's not even, it's an album cut. And uh, they were like, wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are like 20 year old kids, kids in their twenties. David has, uh, David always said that good talent will always shine, paraphrasing, but the, you know, and that, is a testament of that. Here is the music that was recorded 40 years ago, and here are these kids in their 20s who had never heard it before enjoying it. But there is a new generation who are discovering his music. Absolutely, as it, as it should be. It stands, it, it, his music is timeless. It, there, it, it's not dated in the least. Not even the Partridge Family music, that's not dated. Yeah, I, I, you know, you think of all the collaborations that David could have done. I mean, Elton John and David, can you imagine that? You know, he went on stage in New Zealand with him in 74. I heard, I heard. And, and they did Crocodile Rock or something like that. Yeah. And, and there's no recording of that. Elton was being interviewed in the UK music press over here. And he said, I'd really love to produce him, reinvent him. We'll do something special. I mean, there was also the talk about him working with David Bowie. So many, as you say, collaborations that could have happened. Whatever reason, never did. But at the same time, he was hanging out with these people. You know, so, you know, you know, that they played music and they sang together and things like that. You know, maybe they recorded something. I would like to hope that they did. I would like to think that they did. Just just the fact that, you know, he, David, got to play with John Lennon. You know, I mean, that's phenomenal. And David also jammed with Wings in Paris. Yes, yes. Ahead of the yes. Wings Over America tour. What his music needs is a curator. There, there needs to be somebody who their full-time job 
is to search and to find his music. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's, that's their job. If I won the lottery, that is what I would do. I would appoint myself curator for his music and travel the globe and search every nook and cranny for whatever I could find. Yeah. I would like to see the stuff that the BBC has, you know, all the appearances that he did on the BBC. That yeah. would be a great compilation. One was in 72, in late 72, when he came over here, he was staying on the yacht on the River Thames and they took him to Robert Stigwood's estate outside London to film him playing croquet on the lawn. And I've only ever recalled seeing this once. Wow. I'd never heard of that. But it was a video filmed at Robert Stigwood's estate and he was being driven around in vintage cars. There's so many stills from it. The magazines were full of the pictures in the day and it made national press. But the actual footage, I only recall seeing it once on top of the pot. And that's what I'm talking about. You know, there's, there's, there's you know, stuff that he did in, in Germany. There's stuff that he did in France. There's stuff that he did in New Zealand and stuff like that. And, and, you know, all of that, I've seen snippets of that, you know, it's like, wow, where's the rest of that? I mean, YouTube is, is a wonderful engine, search engine these days, you know, to find stuff that you didn't know existed. And this yeah. really should be brought together to secure his legacy for people in a hundred years from now. But who was David Cassidy? Right. And, and his future family members. We, we do need a deluxe box set of his, of his life. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking yeah. of that, the book that you put together is just outstanding. I open it up and look at it every once in a while and, and read a story here and all this and such. And I'm like, oh my goodness, how in the world did you compile all of that? I mean, that's hours and hours and days and weeks of work. I love human interest stories and I love people. And when I was working on newspapers, I love nothing more than going and doing a feature or an interview with somebody. It came together because the fans were so generous with their time, with their stories, with their memories. And the book itself took on a life of its own. You know, it's something that I started thinking about in 2014, 2016. I already had quite a lot of stories. But when David announced he was retiring in early 2017, it changed the dynamics because people said, well, I'm never going to see him in concert again. I'm never going to see him. And so it brought all these memories up of seeing him in concert and just what he meant to them. But then it changed again. But when he, when he died in November 2017... And that just opened up the floodgates of tributes Absolutely. to write poetry. They went through their memorabilia. They found old pictures. They found Absolutely. letters that he'd signed to them, letters from his mother, um, meetings with his mother, meetings with him. And that's when it really became the, the treasure that it is because the fans wanted to talk about him. So is there a book coming out of your portfolio of, of work in good course? Many people have asked me to do so, and probably. Who are the, yeah. the most iconic people that you've photographed? I got some great shots of Cindy Lauper that I'm very pleased with. Uh, some of the shots I have on my Facebook page, um, but I got some great shots of Bono, uh, you too. <laughs> I just got a bunch, yeah. you know. The biggest tragedy of it all, though, Daryl, is that he's not here to see how much he was loved. 
and it's sad that it has to take something like this for people, you know, people are coming out of the woodworks, yeah. you know, about David, you know, I am seeing on the, on the Facebook pages, you know, more and more men, you know, our age, you know, that saying, yeah, I was absolutely into David Cassidy. You know, I, like I said, I was fortunate enough that none of my friends ever gave me any grief about it. Mm-hmm. And I've been listening to David Cat. My son listens to me. He, he, you know, he says he doesn't like it. But, you know, yeah, I'm not ashamed of, of my, my David Cassidiness. I don't think any, and, any of the men are. And I, that was the one thing that really excited me about the book was suddenly all these guys coming forward. Yeah. And saying, I want to talk about how he influenced my career. Because of him, I'm, I'm a musician. Because of him, I'm an actor. Because of him, I'm a it's, it's because of him that I am a photographer. So, you know, it's a, it's a domino effect. It is. You know, and overall, he made all of us better people. Absolutely. On my phone, my ringtone is, I think I love you. <laughs> it's, been on my, it's been on my ringtone for years, though. And I love the reaction that it gets when I'm out in public and, and my phone rings. <laughs> I love it. I mean, you, you, you would not believe the amount of people who say, <gasps> I love that song. Well, there you go. You see, it stood the test of time. It's probably the quintessential perfect pop song. It is. It, it's pop perfect. Thank you so much for your time today. And it was a pleasure talking with you. We'll see you soon. If you have enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, share on social media, and I would love it if you subscribed. That way you can find out first when a new episode is available. Until we connect again. Stay safe, take care of yourselves and each other.